Section 16 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. The Bulwark of the Gospels, Parts 4 and 5. 4. We have still to glance at the most difficult of these problems in the relation of John to the synoptics. The slightest inspection of the fourth gospel shows that it is very different in style and character from the former three. Yet the internal evidence of the apostle's authorship is nearly as conclusive as the external. No one can read the gospel fairly without perceiving that the author claims, in numerous direct and indirect ways, to be an eyewitness of the events which he describes, e.g. John chapter 1 verse 14, chapter 19 verse 35, 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. He lays emphasis on his witness and in an appendix to the gospel the truthfulness of his testimony is attested by others john chapter twenty one verse twenty four he is quite evidently the disciple the other disciple the disciple whom jesus loved john chapter thirteen verse twenty three and chapter twenty one verse twenty so often mentioned in the gospel but never named the simple fact that John's name never once occurs, but that he is always referred to in this paraphrastic manner, is itself convincing proof that John and no other is the author. In one way, the very difference in style between the fourth and the other Gospels is corroboration of this conclusion. John, according to the consentient tradition, was an aged man when he wrote the Gospel. He had so often retold and so long brooded over the thoughts and words of Jesus that they had become, in a manner, part of his own thought, and in reproducing them, he necessarily did so with a subjective tinge and in a partially paraphrastic and interpretive manner. Yet it is truly the words, thoughts, and deeds of his beloved Lord that he narrates. Footnote. Godet has said, The discourses of the fourth gospel, then, do not resemble a photograph, but the extracted essence of a savory fruit. From the change wrought in the external form of the substance, it does not follow that the slightest foreign element has been mingled with the latter. Come on, John. Introduction, page 135, E.T. The comparison has often been suggested of the reports of the teaching of Socrates by Xenophon and Plato, respectively. End of footnote. His reminiscences, even of minute details of time, place, circumstance, were vivid and accurate, and he sets all down faithfully and carefully. Yet the differences between John and his fellow evangelists should not be exaggerated. 
The statements made on this subject by critics bent at all costs on destroying the credit of the gospel are often quite unwarranted. John writes to convince his readers that Jesus was the Son of God, chapter 20, verse 31, and in his prologue he declares that in Jesus the divine Logos had become incarnate, chapter 1, verse 1 and 14 but the term Logos is never put into the mouth of Jesus himself, who, notwithstanding his lofty claims, and none could be greater, is pictured as living a truly human life, hungering, thirsting, being wearied, sorrowing, sympathizing, weeping, being troubled in soul, agonizing, dying. In none of the Gospels does Jesus appear more tender, sympathetic, loving and eager for the salvation of men even in the point of the discourses which are apt to appear long and controversial in comparison with the synoptics dr drummond has shown by a careful induction that this impression is largely a mistaken one the speeches in john are not really longer than those in matthew and they abound in short, concise sayings, like those in the Synoptics. Footnote. Character and Authorship of the Fourth Gospel, pages 16 to 20. His tables, which draw out the evidence in detail, should be studied. Professor Peake also reminds us that, as Matthew Arnold pointed out long ago, when we look into the speeches, we find a large number of sayings of the same pithy aphoristic character as those contained in the Synoptic Gospels. London Quarterly Review, October 1905, page 283. and a footnote. It should be remembered also that a writer like John uses the direct form of speech where we would use the indirect a fact which gives the appearance of literal quotation where sometimes the author is not professing to do more than give the substance of a remark or conversation in his own words but beyond these considerations which bear directly on the form of john's narratives there are certain others which require to be taken into account as yielding the right perspective for a just estimate of this gospel. It is necessary, e.g., to remember 1. How small a part of Christ's ministry is really covered by the fourth gospel, some 18 or 20 days, perhaps, at most. 2. That the scenes in this gospel are mostly laid in Judea, under quite different conditions from those of the Galilean ministry. John's narratives and those of the synoptics therefore hardly ever intersect. John was acquainted with the other Gospels and purposely refrained from reproducing matter already found in them. 3. In the few cases where the narratives do intersect, as in the narrative of the feeding of the 5,000, John chapter 6 verses 6 through 13, and part of the scenes of the Passion, the resemblance is often very close. 4. That the reports of Christ's sayings and discourses in the Synoptics, in part also in John, are but notes, summaries, condensations, 
of what must often have been addresses of considerable duration. 5. That in the privacy of familiar intercourse with his disciples, e.g. John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus would express himself in a very different way from what he did in his popular preaching to the multitudes. The objective, parabolic character of the latter would give place to a style more intimate, flowing, and tender. I conclude that there need be no hesitation in accepting the fourth gospel as a genuine work of the beloved disciple. Such being the general character of our four gospels, it needs no elaboration of argument to prove how strong and reliable is the evidence they afford to the character, claims, words, deeds of the Jesus whose portrait they enshrine. A fourfold aspect. If Matthew writes predominantly for Jews to set forth Jesus as the Messiah, Mark for Gentiles to exhibit him by his wondrous works as the Son of God, Luke as the companion of Paul to picture him as the gracious Savior. John, rising above time relations to declare his oneness in eternity with God, it is yet the same Christ that, under these several aspects, they depict. The harmony of character is as remarkable as the variety of representation. Of special interest is the value of the evidence which the Gospels afford to the element most impugned in the life of Jesus, his miracles. That evidence is often represented as weak, rightly apprehended it is irresistibly strong. The special fact to be kept hold of here is that behind the individual miracle there stands the whole mass of evidence sustaining the historicity and credibility of the Gospels as a whole. There are three main strands in this evidence for the miracles of Jesus. 1. There is the fact that the miraculous element cannot be eliminated from the narratives of the Gospels. The miraculous is minutely and inseparably interwoven with the texture of the Gospels, and it is impossible to get rid of it without destroying the whole. Instead of the miracle discrediting the narrative, the internal marks of truth in the narrative and other evidences of historicity sustain the credit of the miracle. As little can miracle be got rid of by mutilation of the text. It is a purely arbitrary procedure, e.g., on the part of Elhausen, to leave out the first two chapters of Matthew from his version of the Gospels. The account of the Nativity in Luke, again, likewise omitted by Wellhausen, is an integral part of the Gospel, exhibiting the well-known marks of that author's style. 2. The miracles are sustained by the fact that the narratives of the ministry to which they belong rest on firm apostolic tradition, or better, testimony. The story as it stands in the Gospels does not rest on the individual testimony of the author of the Gospel. 
He is putting down what was known and believed in the church generally as derived from those who had been eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. There was a fixed tradition carefully conveyed to the churches and made the basis of catechetical instruction. The Gospels are the deposit of it in writing. 3. Taking the Gospels by themselves, they rest ultimately on the testimony of eyewitnesses. The value of the testimony does not suffer by its being, in some cases the testimony of the twelve or eleven combined. The resurrection, e.g., rests on the combined witness of all the apostles. But in the Gospels we have individual testimony also. Few now doubt that at least the ground stock of Matthew is from the pen of that apostle, and we have seen reason to believe that the whole Gospel is so. Even if Logia are assumed, it is certain that these embraced narrative elements. Mark, it has been seen, is really the Gospel of Peter whose testimony to the facts of Christ's ministry the evangelist preserves. Luke, in his preface, carries us back to eyewitnesses as the source of his information. In John's Gospel, finally, we have the testimony of an eyewitness. All these witnesses include miracle in what they report of the life of Jesus. The miracles themselves have a congruity with the character of Christ and the ends of his ministry, which give them a claim upon our faith. 5. Only one point more and I leave the subject. It relates to the alleged falsification by history of Christ's repeated predictions of his return in glory. These also form an essential part of the gospel testimony about Jesus and cannot be separated from it. Yet well nigh nineteen centuries have passed and the Lord has not returned yet. As Professor Huxley puts the point in one of his essays, one thing is quite certain. If the belief in the speedy second coming of the Messiah which was shared by all parties in the primitive church, whether Nazarene or Pauline, which Jesus is made to prophesy over and over again in the Synoptic Gospels and which dominated the life of Christians during the first century after the crucifixion. If he believed and taught that, then assuredly he was under an illusion and he is responsible for that which the mere effluxion of time has demonstrated to be a prodigious error. I do not stay to discuss the many subsidiary questions that arise here, whether, e.g., the parousia of Christ was conceived of by him as a single event or not, rather as a process with many stages culminating in his personal return at the end of the age. I accept the fact that the personal return of the Lord was clearly predicted by himself in many passages and that in the New Testament it appears throughout as the great impending event of the future for which his people are exhorted to watch and wait, which 
therefore, must ever, if they truly look for it, be near to them in spirit. And I make on the predictions of this great event but two remarks. 1. It is repeatedly declared, and by none more emphatically than by Jesus himself, that the times and seasons of these final events were kept by the Father in his own power and were not made known to man. Acts chapter 1 verse 7 Even in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus distinguishes clearly between these nearer things which were to be fulfilled in that generation, verse 34, and that day and hour of which he says that no man knoweth, neither the angels nor even the Son, verse 36, Mark chapter 13, verse 32. 2. Has the church itself no responsibility for the delay in the Lord's coming? This is an aspect of the subject often overlooked. Prophecy is conditional. C.F. Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 7 to 10, etc. From the point of view of the absolute knowledge of the Father, the time of the advent, like the day of one's own death, is fixed. But relatively and humanly, we can do much either to hasten or retard the fulfillment of God's promises and the triumph of his kingdom. The Westminster Catechism interprets the second petition in the Lord's Prayer as a prayer that the kingdom of grace may be advanced and the kingdom of glory may be hastened. But if the kingdom of glory may be hastened, May it not also be kept back? Had the church been more faithful in the apostolic and in subsequent ages, would the consummation not have been nearer? Would it not have been here? This is, to my mind, an all-important fact to be considered when we ask the question, Why has the Lord not come? End of section 16